0: It is a Monday, and like every Monday here at the Stacky Benjamin Show, we begin with a shout-out to our troops, a big hand for the men and women in our U.S. Armed Forces for keeping us safe all weekend so we could have a fantastic weekend. So on behalf of OG and the team of people down here in the basement and the team of people working hard down at Navy Federal Credit Union, big salute to the troops. Let's all go together and stack some Benjamins this week, shall we?
1: what a filthy job could be worse how could be raining live from joe's mom's basement it's the stacking benjamin show I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today we're talking with someone whose work you've probably smelled, in a good way, because she's the founder of the Chesapeake Bay Candle Company. It's May. She. What makes people successful in business and work? She'll share all of her secrets. Speaking of smell, do you smell smoke? Because in our headline segment, we'll celebrate National Fire Safety Awareness Month, Which means we welcome back from Underwriter Labs Fire Safety Research Institute fan favorite Steve Kerber. And of course, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to answer one listener's questions, share a TikTok minute, and then I'll have my trivia. And now, two guys who smell a little like teen spirit, just saying. Hey, can we get a few of those candles fired up down here? it's joe and oh
2: I take offense to that because i have my very important candle that i always have lit you got one doug got one you know what candle i'm talking about the world's the holiday candle
0: second most awesome candle behind the chesapeake bay candle company of course because you got to remember yes with Mei she coming down here we suck up to the guests a little bit OG
2: we do yep we do
0: hey everybody welcome to no it doesn't stink you stink for the win podcast I'm Joe Salsi. hi average Joe money on Twitter and happy Monday to you Mr OG have a great great fall weekend
2: I had a fantastic weekend it's fall
0: 87 degrees here on Saturday 87 it's what we call
2: a fantastic weekend
0: yes but a little little hot La
2: Nina still. coming.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I'll i tell you what, last week I got to fire up the solo stove, but uh, no solo stove in this weekend when it's that warm.
2: The sun is its own solo stove. It is. You get the solo stove in the sky. But I don't mind, though, because it's, still, totally it's still cool in the morning. It's Stop 50 it. degrees in the morning, and it's 80 in the afternoon. That's what we call perfect.
0: It's close, but a little warm for me. But you know what else is warm? The glow of a beautiful candle, and the woman who created... Was the founder of Chesapeake Bay Candle Company. You heard her on Guy Raz's show, How I Built This. You're about to hear her here, May She, coming down to the basement to talk about if you at all are worried about getting ahead in your career or you are thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, even if you're not thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, just so many lessons uh, from the time that she moved here from China to setting big goals for yourself and the power of listening. Good stuff. Uh, we also got Steve Kerber coming down, National Fire Safety Prevention Month. As somebody that had a house fire when he was a kid, it seems like it can't happen to you, It's a good time for this reminder. But first, this episode sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. create a plan that fits your needs and your budget state farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner talk to a state farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs like a good neighbor state farm is there talk to your local agent today all right big show today so let's get rocking
3: hello darlings and now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines.
0: Well, October is Fire Prevention Month, and we all worry about our homeowners insurance. Of course, we all worry about uh, making sure that we have the right protection. You know what the right protection might be? Might be helping ensure your home and family's protected. This holiday, by the way, goes back to 1922. Did you know that? Is it, is it
2: a holiday? But uh, no, I didn't know
0: that. And it uh, commemorates the Great Chicago Fire back
2: in 18... I say the Chicago Fire, probably, right? 1871 was the Great Chicago Fire. I remember when old Betsy kicked over that kerosene lamp. <laughs>
0: One dark night when we were all in bed. You know that song. One dark night we were all in bed, Miss O'Leary uh-uh. lit the lantern in the shed, and then the cow tipped it over, winked a tie, and said, it's going to be a hot time in the old town tonight. We like to learned that in elementary school.
2: No? Oh, it was more recent for you. <laughs> it was, back when it was
0: it was only a year or two before this. Is s- that
2: right after you guys learned uh, Ring Around the Rosie? Pocket Full of Posies, Ashes, Ashes, We All Fall Down about, to commemorate the Black Plague. About
0: the Black Plague, yes.
2: <laughs> you did do that one too? Yeah, we did We did too, but for you it was more recent. All right, enough old guy jokes. Uh, fire safety. Yes, very important. Mucho importante.
0: We actually talked to uh, Steve Kerber about this, a guy we've had on the last couple of years in a row, we love talking to Steve, and he's from UL's Fire Safety Research Institute. I asked him, O.G., about the importance of a plan and about some of the new equipment coming out, and this is uh, this is what Steve had to say.
4: Nobody thinks fire is going to happen to them, right? So it's it's one of these things where if it takes Fire Prevention Month to get the information out there, then I guess we kind of capitalize on that. But yeah. most people. Don't understand what their smoke alarms sound like, uh, what the different sounds mean, whether it chirps or whether it goes into alarm. And uh, a lot of people don't know that the smoke alarms expire. So if you've got a 10-year anniversary of your smoke alarm, it's time to get new ones.
0: Did you know that, by the way, OG, that that the smoke alarms actually expire?
2: I do know that. And... You know, the batteries wear out. Yeah. And then I put a little sticker on there of when we replace the battery. They're all wired together. So it amazes me that the battery would wear out because the battery should never be being used, basically. Right. So that's how we're doing it is as they kind of burn through batteries a little bit quicker, which, by the way, I don't know about yours, but my batteries always go off at 2 a.m. I uh, I think
0: there's a law that says they have to.
2: I know why. I actually know the reason why. But um, anyways, so yes, I did know that.
0: Yeah, I did. I did not know that. He also talked about, though, that there are some there's there's new things in the new smoke detectors like smoke detectors. If you haven't gotten a new one recently, smoke detectors have gotten a hell of a lot better.
4: They're getting so much better. Uh, A lot of the ones, if you see the package in the store that says uh, nuisance cooking alarms, they're coming up with better sensors to tell the difference between an actual fire and Burning toast or boiling a burger—I uh, mean, smoke has like a fingerprint. So uh, the sensors are getting better to be able to tell the difference between those fingerprints.
0: That's 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 so good, especially at your house, RG.
2: Who's boiling a burger? <laughs> You're good. Neanderthal does that. <laughs> we have the Nest thermostats in our downstairs, and it sends an alert to your phone. And like you was talking about, like the different types of alerts and what they mean. Yeah, it will say like smoke is building in the hallway. Oh, smoke is building in the hallway. And then after it starts coming down, like, you know, you're burning something in the oven, open the oven and all the smoke comes out, you know, and it kind of carries through the house. Then we'll get an alert on the phone that says smoke is dissipating in the hallway.
0: FSRI did some research and they found that only 34% of people know the meaning of the various sounds their smoke alarms make. Getting back to what Steve (laughs) said about that. 68% of respondents unaware of the timeline for smoke alarm replacement and nearly half would investigate the area if a smoke alarm sounded rather than evacuate. So in other words, they'd run toward it instead of running running away because they don't know what the different things things mean. He also talked about another important aspect of Fire Prevention Month.
4: Fire is incredibly fast. People completely underestimate how much time they have to get out in if they do have a fire. So people tend not to plan for it. What we found through our research, I mean, we burn house after house after house trying to understand how fire grows and spreads and what people can do to be safe. And the thing that stands out time after time is if you've got a closed door between you and where that fire is, you will have much more time to be able to figure out what's going on, how to safely get out. If you can get out, absolutely get out of your house. I mean, in your case, it might be a little awkward to get out of the basement. You've got a longer path to go, maybe out of an escape window or something like that. But uh, we've got to know those things and you've got to practice them ahead of time, because if you try and do it during a fire, I mean, I don't know many people that can wake up out of a dead sleep and within a couple minutes, get the kids, get the dog, find your way out. All that stuff is incredibly difficult.
0: You know, it's funny, OG, that uh, kids at school often will practice these multiple routes, right? The fire's over here. The fire's over here. It's not the kids, really, that that we're worried about. It's the parents. But We never practice it. I know you started, because of this interview a few years ago, you started doing that with your family.
2: Yeah, we talk about it. And uh, I, I think it's more interesting that we have had the smoke detectors go off in our house, and my kids have no idea. They didn't bat an eye. They just weren't. Nothing. Just keep on playing Xbox or, you know, I mean, we talk about the beeping that goes on when the battery, you know, yeah. and like how that will wake you up out of a dead sleep. Yeah. We've had it that it's in one of the kids' rooms and we they sleep with their door shut. So that's good. So the door's shut. It's their smoke detector that's in their bedroom that's beeping. We can hear it, you know, halfway across the house in the middle of the night. And they sleep right, they right through they, it. chirp and they're sleeping right through it.
0: Oh, time for another one, huh?
2: Time to get back on it. Time to do a 2 a.m. practice run.
0: (laughs) Dad'll to make sure that doesn't happen again. I think if you make those things fun, that the whole family then gets involved and uh, a a great family activity that saves lives. And at the same time, you know, we, we spend so much time on our homeowner's insurance. Why wouldn't we spend time actually saving the life versus just saving a few Benjamins? Well, you'll see when you try out the 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial.
4: Somebody hands you $25,000 right
2: now. What's the first thing you do? I would definitely scream a little bit like, ah, you know, because
3: that's a lot of money. And then uh, second, I would have to invest in something like sheep's. Because in my country, it's very important that you invest in something that lasts a long time, that has multiple purposes. So, I, for if you have sheep, you have uh, fur for the beds, fur for the uh, clothes, you have warmth for the wintertime, you also have a best friend. And then you also have food at the end of the day. <laughs> you,
0: you also have a best friend until you have to eat them. Isn't that what you do if you got $25,000 handed to
2: you right now? I can't say that I would buy sheep with it. Cuddle up with your sheep. I, I do like the idea of the investment.
0: Yeah. Multiple streams of income there too. Multiple streams.
2: No. Different people like different things for investing.
0: Yeah. And of course, I think she's right too. You'd scream a little because that's a lot of money. So I hand you 25 grand. That's a fantastic TikTok video. You got one for us. Uh, send those to Joe at com. And of course, uh, this week, not a lot of commentary on that, OG. Just uh, one of my favorite. how much to add. One of my favorite. One of my favorite things on the internet, just a little mic drop there. All right, coming up in a few minutes, we've got uh, May Shi, who has this amazing story about creating the Chesapeake Bay Candle Company. Of course, now she's the creator of Yes, She May in uh, June of 2020. And her goal with that is to power the growth of women entrepreneurs around the world. She has has done so many cool things. We're super happy she agreed to come tell her story. If you're not familiar with May's story, well, buckle up because she's about to inspire the heck out of you. But you know what's also inspiring? We got Doug here. Oh, gee, just waiting to get on the microphone. And, uh, well, of course, as usual, Doug has maybe a little rant and also has today's trivia.
1: Hey, Stackers. Thank God Steve Kerber didn't see all those fireworks over in the corner next to our emergency stash of gasoline. Speaking of fireworks, on this date in 1984, the woman who wrote the hit song Firework, Katy Perry, was born. According to Chartmasters.org, the site I end every night with, as far as you know, Perry holds the record for the most songs sold past $10 I bet that added some pyrotechnics to her bank account. So, how many songs in total did she have that made it to that mark? I'll be back with the answer just after I change the battery in my smoke alarm. Well, O G at Navy Federal Credit Union, they like to
0: reward their members for using their credit cards. Well,
2: everybody gets a free aircraft carrier,
0: <laughs> and guess what? You get an F
2: sixteen. No, I know, not no, a thing. Little drawing you save up enough points you get a submarine now if i could meet with tom cruise that would be fun
0: but they actually give you they have a great uh, credit card reward program and uh, stackers you already know this don't play the credit card reward game unless you pay off your credit card every month right and you want to do that navy federal has a bunch of great tools to help you learn to get your budget in order control your debt when you do this, listen to this, OG. You can now earn up to 1.75% cash back on all purchases with a cash reward card when you sign up for direct deposit. And when you use the Navy Federal Mobile app, you can redeem your rewards as soon as you earn them. So you're not waiting around for them to hit your account. Plus, there's no annual balance transfer balance transfer, balance transfer or uh, foreign transaction fees, plus Rewards never expire I just had uh, in one of my reward programs, we had to use them uh, suboptimally because of the fact they were going to expire. I'm like, wow, I got it so annoying. It is so bad. None of that at uh, Navy Federal with their card. Learn more at Navyfederal.org, insured by NCUA. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money's breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money in the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed.
1: Hey there, stackers, I'm noted neurosurgeon, respected muscalunge hunter, and basement euchre champion, Joe's mom's neighbor Doug. I'm putting out candles for special guest May she while we're talking about Katy Perry's big hit. The question was, how many have sold more than 10 million copies? Let's see, uh, there was uh, like Pretty Princess or something, uh, Brunettes Love Sharks sure that was one of them russell brand's dreamboat that was definitely one of them and those are just the ones i can remember let's take a look at the sheet wow you might remember i kissed a girl hot and cold california girls firework and roar which all made it to sell 10 million copies that's five songs so if you guessed five you get to high five yourself now i'm high-fiving myself because we all get to meet the creator of the chesapeake bay candle company may she and here she comes down the stairs
0: to the basement my new friend may she is here how are you
3: excellent thank you for inviting me again
0: well we have obviously we have different backgrounds but i feel like we have so much in common may and one thing is, I saw you recently on an interview where the interviewee started off the interview by asking you the same question I'm going to ask you, and that's about your name being mis- mispronounced all the time, because we have that in common. I, with a name like Saul Sehai, I always knew who the telemarketers are in my life, and who doesn't know me? You must have the
3: same thing. I do, and it's really ranging from Missou to Mizzou. Yes. Uh, and I affects you for many Americans if they're not used to it. It really directs them to nowhere. It's like a darkness for them. So they usually freeze, and they sometimes become very crafty by saying, "How do you pronounce XU?" But some of them just just spell it for me. Miss XU, uh, and I know it's me. So it's actually Mei She, and yeah. um, will say, "What does your dad do?" Because it's a Mister H- Mister She, right? I said, "Yes, <laughs> Mister She has a lot of explanation to do." <laughs> that's that's <laughs> right.
0: Now, you grew up in one of the most beautiful parts of China. Why leave one of the most beautiful places in the world?
3: Well, you know, my husband, too, used to grow up in Italy and uh, Lake Hormone, and he too. Oh, my
0: goodness. Talk about beautiful areas.
3: For Washington, D.C., I wouldn't say that it's known for either beautiful food or fashion, although we're trying to change that one family at a time. So I grew up, as you probably read, in the hardest time possible growing up in China, which is the Cultural Revolution. I was born in 67. That's when Chairman Mao started the Cultural Revolution. And most of my childhood was spent wandering in a very homogeneous society where everyone wears similar clothes, where everyone had not much to eat. So by the time I was ready to go to middle school and high school, that's when President Nixon visited China and started what's called an amazing week where the world started to change and China opened to the world. And in 1979, the Chinese government realized that they really don't have a lot of career-trained diplomat in the sense that they speak a language, they understand the culture and the history. So they decided maybe kids should start learning language at a much younger age that would then provide them the opportunity to go on and um, learn more in uh, more advanced degrees. And I was one of those kids.
0: I love how you refer to this, by the way, in the book. When you go to one of these schools, you call it off to Hogwarts.
3: <laughs> it's it's really like, other than I did not get to fly in one of those blooms. <laughs> it was an amazing transformation. Imagine once you are in school, the doors are open for you and the world opened up. I was able to watch godfather in early 1980s i was able to see how americans can open their refrigerator and take out a can of beans to me it was so remarkable that you don't have to go to a grocery store or a market and buy all the beans with all the you know leaves and then you have to peel them until there's only a very small pile left So all these things were magic to us. And we have teachers from the United States, from Britain and Australia to try to teach us very um, basic languages. But you still got, Uh, and I'm
0: I'm sorry to interrupt, but you still got in trouble for adopting too much of that. I read that you got in trouble for wearing blue jeans.
3: Yes, uh, blue jeans, because obviously I didn't mention it much, but it was tight Um, (laughs) and it was a bell button. So it looks something wrong. You know, the the teachers, they can't quite tell. They're not fashion police, but they kind of know that it's not right to be so tight, particularly where they don't want to see it so tight. And they came and talked to me. They say, what's wrong with you? You're a class leader. You're doing very well. Why are you wearing something sort of unusual? And that's where I gave him my answer. I said, this is, uh, it's called cowboy jeans. They are worn by cowboys. <laughs> and they have to wear it very tight because it's, if it's too loose, if they're we- wearing it while on horseback, they'll be uh, stopped by that's the right. <laughs> it
0: makes sense. Absolutely.
3: <laughs> I just make it up. But anyway, that was a little peak of my, my rebellions teenager years. So you
0: wanted to be a diplomat, and my understanding is Tiananmen Square really changed all of that.
3: Yeah, I mean, it changes so many people's lives in so many profound ways. I wasn't even there to protest because I was working for the World Bank, and I was very happily at that time almost ignorant to a degree of what exactly has been going on. I heard, starting in April, student has protested to not go to any classes. So there's no classes going on. There's no teaching, there's no homework. Everybody is just in this very sort of bizarre position to just wait and see what will happen. So when it did happen, it was a big event, obviously. So big that the graduating year, which is my year, in July was basically sent away from major cities. So there couldn't be any other oh. gatherings by the student. Yeah. And I was then sent away to northern China. I don't know if you know the city, Danian. It's a port city, but north of Beijing. And my job was to really not practice English, but um, helping to look after minerals that are being shipped by the boatload. And my job was really very boring and almost going to lose. Uh, uh, let me lose my English and other language
0: capabilities. You make this plan to come to the United States and I will forego people that want to know this full circuitous route of how you got that done. We'll let them read the book and get all that. But I'll skip to you coming to the United States. You initially go to school for a journalism degree when you get here. Number one, why journalism? And then number two, it sounds frustrating. I can
3: read the frustration in the
0: book that that didn't work out.
3: I was interested in journalism because of the communication aspect that I noticed is missing in a way when I work for the World Bank. So the World Bank in the early 80s started to extend its aid program to China And I noticed during my mission uh, as a translator for many of those uh, aid programs is that the local government seldom have a chance to really brief the local population of what kind of facility they're getting from the World Bank. For example, we went to what is basically the very controversial area of Xinjiang. It's to the north and northwest of China. And I remember going there. And we were building latrines. And by the time I finished the, the journey, and we were just uh, talking to local communities, and they say, but we don't want latrines. <laughs> and I said, why? They say, it is so dry here. <laughs> Once we go to answer the calls of nature, it's all becoming powders. What we really need is uh, hand pumps. We want water. Mm. And I look at them and I can see their faces are so dirty from the wind and the dirt. They only get showered three times in their life. The moment they were born, the moment before they get married, and the moment before they get buried. And no one has do a consumer study with them or customer information intake to say, hey, we got this money coming. What is more needed here? I see that you don't have any water. Do you want a hand pump or a latrine, which obviously is very important for safety and health issues. So, my thought at that time, and I was very young, I didn't understand the red tape, I did not understand the silos sometimes existed in big international organizations. My thought was, I was a good translator, and this skill set taught me that there could be a lot more discussions before the mission so that they can obtain some common goals. That's why. I task myself to sort of focus on the best way to diffuse information. That's what public communication is about, right? Um, It's not necessarily working for media, but also for a broader audience. It's the diffusion of information and innovation that I'm very interested in. And I also want to find a school very close to Washington, D.C., that can allow me to continually work for the World Bank, and that's why I chose the, the School of Journalism, and I end up at University of Maryland. I was very naive, as usual. If you graduate and you couldn't work for the World Bank, which I couldn't, because that was the year we fought the war with Iraq for the first time. Yeah. And because the bank is much funded by the United States, when the United States is in the war, it usually become a little bit hesitant about dispensing the entire commitment to the organization sure so maybe there's a cut but what i do know is there is a hiring police of people that are not financial and economic major and i certainly wasn't so they say may go find some other thing to do and then when everything back to normal we will hire you and that's when i realized with a journalism degree but as a foreigner it's really a very difficult situation because usually you get to work in public affairs or you work at working media and without a green card and not being an American citizen, it put me in a very awkward position to find jobs. I want to
0: pause there for a second, because I'm wondering if, With all the things you've done since then from Chesapeake Bay on, I feel like your trip to the north, the diverse experience that you had, the communication background, I feel like all of this fueled your ability to communicate and also have some empathy for your customer, which I feel like is important. How big were those early days on being a successful entrepreneur later?
3: You know, I always tell my kids, if they're willing to listen, that you never go to a school or a college. You, you never apply what exactly you learn into the first job or even the second job. A lot of times it gives you a tool. And I think the tool that I got from being a language learner at a very young age, obviously it directly supported my new home. Um, I don't have a lot of difficulty the moment I arrive. Uh, not only can I speak and this is what I thank the, the government in the sense that they understand to be a good diplomat. You can't just speak a language. You have to be empathetic to the culture. You have to be able to connect with the population at a much deeper level. And that's what we get to do is we watch a lot of movies. We watched a lot of sort of older movies and as well as newer movies. And I understand the society a lot better than even some Americans do. So I do think this preparation give me a lot more ammunition to use when I find myself in a very uh, new position, which is looking for a new job, looking for a new career. And it also gives me a very good ability to evaluate the situation. I think when you are an immigrant in particular, you tend to be more aware of your environment. You tend to be noticing things that Native take for granted um, that is the story about me going to Bloomingdale's, Well, right? that was,
0: I'm glad you said that because that was right yeah. where I was headed.
3: Yeah. You guys may take it for granted like, oh, this is, this year the trees is turning yellow slower, so what's wrong with it? I would be very sort of startled with those discoveries and I would try to search for the reason why. And also because you don't want to look like you're not a native speaker or you're not a, uh, a native-born American, you tend to really take in a lot more culturally. So eventually I I have to go to find a job and it ended up being in New York. But I was alone. My then husband was uh, living in DC. So I have very few friends at that time and I have a lot of time. And what do you do? Nowadays, nobody has time because we can all go on the internet. (laughs) But back in 1990, you really don't have anything else other than watching TV and so I started to explore my neighborhood and they happened to be the neighborhood next to Bloomingdale's, the flagship store. To me, it's just the best experimental place for social study and for fashion study. For anything you want to study, you can find in that eight floor building because if you're willing, all the answers are kind of hidden there.
0: And the answer was at the time, that fashion was was bright and fresh but i remember you saying that home goods then all said i think your words are that they all shouted grandma Grandma,
3: (laughs) yeah i was thinking when you say we're going down to my mom's uh basement that is the moment i was going to joke about that she has all these laurel floral prints and yes prints for whatever reason, I grow up with very few things. So I learned about the design names also by observing a lot of movies and a lot of sort of eras of decoration style. So for me, it's very easy to say, wow, this is so contemporary. Women's wear is very much taking on the men's wears look, particularly the fabrication. So it, it makes women's wear more powerful and less fushishi. But It also still retains the feminine touch. And to me, that's very powerful because then you can look very simple and striking without compromise. And I think it's a very clever way to update a woman's fashion. And I love them. And then I went up uh, from the second floor to the third and the fourth and fifth floor, and it got more and more boring to the point you went up to the home floor, which is usually in the top, and it's very heavy. The colors are very heavy, and there are a lot of gilded finishes and the furnitures. You know, imagine these days you could go to uh, an Ikea. The furniture is very streamlined yeah. and it's wood, but not all these furnitures up in Bloomingdale's. They are dark, you, you know, they're mahogany and they have all these legs that are ornate. And I just say to myself, I said, I can't imagine this woman wearing the beautiful, simple, but powerful black suits. Going home to this, it sounds so different, you know, it's such a different century.
0: And I remember Chesapeake Bay being on the front end of that and just very, very, uh, I'm not going to get the words right. You'll know them, just very simple lines, very, very very fresh, a little brighter, but it didn't start there. You began importing many different things and you and your husband created this company. It wasn't always easy. In the no. beginning days. I love what you've said so far. I think the big takeaways for our audience so far is to have empathy and to listen. And I think that's so important, but then also to notice the things around you and see where the holes are in the thing that you're trying to develop. But then I think the next lesson has to be to overcome some of this ugliness. You talk about an early trip to Chicago and, and just how awful it was.
3: Yeah, well, I wouldn't say it's different than any other startups, right? We were bootstrapped uh, to trying to go to as many trade shows as possible. And we were very much saving money. I would say if you're an entrepreneur, there will always be those lessons about saving money and you feel sorry for yourself because you used to be traveling on five star hotels with the World Bank, right? <laughs> and what's wrong with you? Right. You went to well, to that- five miles away, <laughs> and to that
0: point, by the way, was because both of you quit your jobs. My understanding is at the same time, was that a difficult leap of faith, or were you so, both so dissatisfied that that was fairly easy for you? Because I can't imagine that day in history.
3: Well, you know, I was reading about how many people have resigned. Yeah. Uh, recently because of COVID, and a lot of people were very surprised because we're not known as a nation that people just quit, you know, for whatever reason. But I think for us, it's also because we were so worried that we're going to get stuck in our way. We are going to be get stuck in our job, stuck being in an unhappy job, and start to borrow money for a house having babies against our plan. And then we would say, oh, you know what? Our entrepreneur little dreams like that is for other people. It's not for us. I think we were very aware that we have no debt. We have no dogs even. (laughs) We don't have anyone that will literally say for their sake, we have to keep our job. So I guess the message for the audience is that if you ever want to be an entrepreneur, don't wait. And there is no perfect moment. But you will regret if you never tried
0: it. I totally agree. Just in my journey, it's when I hesitated that I I made a mistake. Like if I look back at mistakes I made, it's that I didn't go sooner. You write a lot then about design creativity and attention to the customer versus shareholder value. You see two different types of companies around you all the time now, May. Talk about the difference there in your philosophy about creativity and customer loyalty over profit margin.
3: Well, you know, it's such a heated topic nowadays, right? We used to hear, you know, the defense when people stopped in their way at an organization. Is there, what's wrong with that? We have given great results on the top line, as well as the bottom line. Are shareholder ha- uh, happy? And what can you do about that? So I do see the shift, you know, about the word ESG, for example. People yeah. started to look at equity, They look at You know whether there's really sustainability and and governance. But I do feel uh, way before that, for me, it's always about, do you connect with your consumers emotionally? Are you really listening to them? Because of the fact that we partner with some of the best tech companies in the retail world, I would say, case in point, I always love to talk about Target. Uh, I like to talk about them because they were one of the first companies, if you recall, that I feel I got trained by, Mm. that really put us in a different level of competitiveness. I was an entrepreneur, but I become a real business person because of the intel that they were able to share on a very regular basis. We're able to learn, oh, of this week, you have 2,000 stores in every corner of the United States. It always fascinated me because remember, I came from a culture where none of those information will ever be shared. Everything is always covered. And even some retailers behave this way. Either they don't have the technology or they don't feel it's going to help them by sharing with their partners. But the way that Target work to instill in their vendors that only by working on the same data point can you truly prepare for the best sales opportunity. So in other words, let me give you an example. 2000 stores. Some of them are very big. Some of them are very, very small. There could be just a smallest store in Idaho, or you're comparing that store with the busiest store, which happened to be in Manhattan, but all the way up in the north in Harlem. That's their best store, just so you know. (laughs) And every week, if you want, you could see how many people buy my French vanilla candle over in Idaho, as well as in New York. Why do I want to know? I want to know because each place has different demographics. And each one of them also demonstrates tolerance for price point differently. So once you get to see that data point, particularly when you launch a new product, it's amazing what information you can start to pile on top of each other. And how informed can I become With my supply chain, we can start planning the inventory and the supply chain in a way that we can never do. I can see if vanilla is outselling and I can start buying more vanilla fragrances, right? And I don't even need to buy them. This is the best part. I can let the vendor know I'm going to buy more. Imagine I do that with all the main vendors. That gave me an edge that no other candle companies will do. If they don't know what they're selling or if they're uh, retailers are not sharing, they wouldn't know. So I become very, very good at jumpstart with a season, analyzing data, analyzing trends and getting ourselves backed up. So obviously, I didn't learn this at school. I was learned to uh, about history of uh, culture, but it prepared me to be very aware of trends and strategic and being able to see further and 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 globally, so it probably come as no surprise because of my uh, training as a diplomat.
0: Sure, but also just the base message is, because of target sharing, I think it also taught you the importance of sharing when you talk about your your supply chain below you. And what's right. funny is because of that, you know, everybody wants to not share information because you're so afraid of competition. But what you're saying exactly. is because of that sharing targets, more profitable, you're more profitable. The vanilla farmer's more profitable. They everybody's are. more profitable because you all
3: shared information. And the customers are happier. Because exactly. Now yeah. they can load up their favorite vanilla candles and yes. we call them our must-have items. And they were not out of stock with that item. I remember when we have tornadoes. You know what happened to this country when there are tornadoes? You would think that they would be buying, you know, dry sheets and toilet papers. It is the candles they They're buying candles. And I have a hard time understanding. It can't even burn one if they're in a shelter. They do. They bring candles with them because it reminds them of a normal time. Yes. All these emotions that triggered by being able to burn something they do all the time. We have no idea how we impact other people's lives. But when you do see, um, it's a tremendous honor and responsibility to make sure that vanilla candle is always in stock. Well, well let <laughs>
0: me let me add to that. Well, first of all, I'm going to tell you that I think it's funny based on the fact that it's so hard to get vanilla and you only get it from certain places. This American phrase of plain vanilla, there is nothing plain there's about nothing vanilla. Plain, yeah. <laughs> I've, yes. I was a big fan of your candle. It was attractive
3: and it smelled good. You no, know, that's a thing. We call them Mandel. We notice a lot more candles are burned by men. I call them mandel. <laughs> Mandels. That <laughs> Mandels. Is, that's fantastic. Um, because people have been reporting that their husband has been taking their candles away, particularly during COVID. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my work. My wife will tell you that I'm the candle
0: burner in our relationship. I totally See, am.
3: You you need a mando all the time.
0: I want to ask you, uh, I want to change fronts here and fast forward to today, because largely your company today is so much different. Yes, She May is the name of your company. And it's mostly online. How does that change the game in entrepreneurship today versus when you first launched Chesapeake Bay? What are you thinking about today as an entrepreneur that you weren't thinking about then?
3: Yeah, I have to say you hit the nail on the head. It is very different. Um, I have to confess that when I was working in the consumer world, because it's mostly B2B, right? It's not B2C. I don't really know a lot more than I should about all the marketing sort of strategies. Uh, nowadays, you need Facebook ad, you need Google shop ad, you need influencers. You need to be out and talking all time through different channels. So for us, um, merchandising and working with women design product is not the, the hard part. The hard part is to make sure that we can reach that consumer she is no longer coming to Target or coming to Macy's. Consumers are shopping online. They're responding because their friend is recommending them to go check something out. So they're coming almost like from all over the directions and you need to be able to catch them when you can. We need to be able to understand what they're looking for. And you also need to still be able to stay true to your mission. And the mission is to elevate women-owned brands because so often People think about women-owned brands as what you found on Etsy. You know, it's a lot of um, arts and crafts. They did not understand that women designers really are working for women by themselves because they usually started because they can't find certain product in the way they wanted, and they realized that there is a niche, that there is an unfulfilled uh, need that they could try to fulfill. That's sort of my mission right now but i can't tell you that i'm already figuring everything out i would be very curious if anybody that's listening to you to say hey may i think you need to do abc because i'm really i'm still learning every single day
0: but i still get the same message you're still listening You're still empathetic to the community. And I think that obviously is why you've been such a success. Also, your book is called Burn How Grit Innovation and a Dash of Luck Ignited a Multimillion Dollar Success Story. It came out earlier this year. It was fantastic. May, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to hang out with us and talk innovation.
3: The basement is fantastic. Tell your mom. (laughs) We'll burn some candles in the future, too.
0: Hey, Nick Loper here from the Side Hustle Show. When I'm not helping people earn money outside of their day job, I'm stacking Benjamins. Big thanks to Macy for hanging out today. What an amazing woman, OG. And this idea of sharing information, I think is such an eye-opener for a lot of people because when I learned to stop holding my cards close to my face and not telling anybody anything and instead started openly sharing like, I don't know about you, but when I was a financial planner, my career changed the second that I became just a fountain of information for everybody around me. All of a sudden, everybody wanted to hire me. Everybody wanted to work with me. When I held my my cards close and said, oh, I'm not going to help you at all until you pay me some money, didn't really work.
2: Well, I mean, isn't that kind of the basis of the podcast? The whole thing that we do here, which is we want to give away 99.999% of it. Basically.
0: Share, share as much as we possibly can. Yeah. Absolutely. Because then you become a trusted resource. But also for her, I love the idea that because she got more information, I mean Target could have held on to all that info. Right. And said, forget it. That's our information. But by sharing this proprietary stuff, everybody but Target ended up making more money.
2: Right. Yeah. Especially nowadays with technology and resources and you know. The ability for other businesses to, for lack of a better term, riff off of other, you know, ideas and strategies, and you know, all that sort of stuff. I don't, I don't see why you would want to be the person who kind of hoards all of that stuff. You know, whatever business line you're in. Obviously, Coke's not going to give away the recipe to Coke. I get that, but to share with your distributors or to share with your salespeople, you know, I mean, gosh, I'm sure you remember at, at American Express, even the different regions of people in the same levels wouldn't necessarily share information, right? It'd be like, well, I can't tell you what we're doing over here because then you'll beat me in the sales contest. I can't, we can't, we can't tell you our secret. It's like, well, what are you guys doing over there? That's so great for your new advisor team. Oh, we can't tell you that. That's our deal. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous.
0: I think that this is why going to industry conferences, no matter what industry you, you're in, you and what uh, level you are, whether you're the person who's in charge or you're, you're just a uh, cog in the wheel, being great at what you do and sharing information with other people to do what you do. Uh, you know, I think, especially if you're not the boss, OG, and you're able to go to an industry conference and know more about what happens in your industry, you immediately become more valuable, which makes it easier than I think to get raises, but not just that, you know, in two weeks you and I and Doug and Gertrude were headed to Cincinnati to kick off the economy conference. And this is just a conference. It's Ted talks about financial independence. So this is, doesn't even have to do with your job. It has to do with your life. And these are going to be people that are going to spend a weekend learning as much as they can about how to get more out of your life experience and people share information about that. I mean, we're going to have, what Mister Money Mustache will be there? Our friend Paula Pant will be there. Carl Jensen from, uh, who's Mister Fifteen Hundred, will be there. Kirsten Saunders from uh, Rich and Regular, the ladies behind Bitches Get Riches, like these people that comment on this stuff all the time, and are great at curating a lot of this information, are there. And so to have this information exchange, even on that level,
2: is is huge. All ships rise.
0: Yeah, go get it, and hopefully, by the way. Uh, uh, You can join us at Economy. We'll be kicking it off with a live show because the book tour has gotten so unwieldy going to 42 different cities. Only one live show uh, this time around, probably until, well, most definitely I can say until 2023. There will be no other live show like this one. Uh, So... Come see us in Cincinnati, Ohio at the Economy Conference.
2: But that doesn't mean we're not traveling.
0: We we are coming to the cities. We are still coming to the cities. We will not be, though, doing a full performance of the show. So if you want to see the show live, and we've got some crazy stuff lined up for this particular show that we don't normally do on a podcast episode, come join us in Cincinnati. And if you put in stacking Benjamins, by the way, as uh, all one word, all caps... Uh, you'll get 10% off, I believe. Uh, and remember our live show, Little Supper Ticket. I think we've already sold 100 tickets to the show. Probably going to end up somewhere around 130, 140 people. We're going to have a nice audience, OG, in Cincinnati. So it should be, should be a good time with a lot of like-minded people. All right, enough about that. Let's take out the magnifying glass and help somebody do better with their money. Today's hotline call comes to us courtesy of magnifymoney.com. You know what happens, OG, when we head to Stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnify money?
2: I do know, actually. I've been doing this a long time.
0: Yes. And for people that don't know, you find those financial products you use every day at your brick and mortar bank, probably nowhere near best in class, because over 92% of the products available online all ranked head to head at Magnify Money. Also an award-winning blog, fantastic blog, where they talk about all the different nerdy tools out there that you can use to get ahead faster, go to StackyBenjamins.com forward slash magnify money for more and you will see how much better you could do with those everyday money products. And today we're gonna help Dave magnify his money. Say hi Dave. Hey Doug, looking for you down at the Sizzler. The chef there says you have a retraining order. I don't know, it doesn't sound right. I'm not sure you need to be trained. Anyway, maybe one of the other two could take a stab at my question. Got off to an early start with saving and investing. All my math says that I'll be fine. Worst case scenario, I have to cut back on travel. Best case scenario, more money than I could ever spend. How do you know when you'll have enough for invest for retirement? And when do you start to YOLO? Thanks, guys. Thanks for that question, Dave. And uh, thanks also for the note uh, to Doug. Doug uh, might have a little problem with Sizzler OG, but I think we'll let him work through that. Let's work through Dave's question, which is a good one. When do you know when you got enough? How do you know?
2: I think there's the math answer, you know, like I need to accumulate this amount of money and, and I've modeled this out and therefore I don't see any scenarios in which I run out based on this and these aggressive assumptions and that sort of thing. I think there's the math answer, but then there's also the... So what are you going to do about it, answer? That's probably the harder one. Because if you're a great saver, great investor throughout your 20s and 30s and 40s, you're faced with this problem, which is you get to 50 or 52 or 55, and you have enough money, but all of your friends and all the people around you are still elbow deep in work. So you're like, well, I could quit, but what would I do? And my spouse is still working there. You know, my spouse is a teacher, and and he's got five more years to get the pension, which we need for health insurance. So what am I going to do every day? Or I've got enough money or we've got enough money, but all my buddies at the plant are still working because they weren't as smart as me. So I, what am I going to play golf with? You know, that we play on Tuesday nights, but I can't play every, you know, every day because nobody else will be around or I can't go on vacation because I still have kids in high school. I think there ends up being a little bit of a, of a kind of what's next type of conversation. So the math is the math. And then there's the everything else part. People like us can help with the math side of it. And we can kind of help with the what's next by asking some good questions. But I think that's the part that's the most challenging for for people who want to retire early. Yeah,
0: I like a couple of things I've heard here, OG, that I've heard you say a lot. But also our friend, uh, Roger Whitney, the retirement answer man has said, which is you got to be a little okay with uncertainty as well you know, uh, uh, there's going to be a little degree of uncertainty when you turn your income stream off and it turns into a burn rate, y- you're going to have a different feeling than you've ever had in your life because all of a sudden you're burning money instead of earning it. And, uh, and there's a little consternation that happens, uh, but you got to learn to be okay with that.
2: There's a little bit of a luck factor, right? Like the person who retired January 1st of 2008, pretty unlucky just really crappy timing person who retired March 1st of 2020 thought they were going to be pretty unlucky by the end of March. And now are sitting there going, Holy crap. I have twice as much money as I did when I retired. Like I'm, I'm good forever. Like I will, I will never run out. So yeah, there's some uncertainty there, but um, that's okay.
0: There also is uh, on your math calculation, What OG is talking about, uh, I believe one of the calculations that uh, financial planners do that you may want to have done is called a Monte Carlo simulation, which will look at all the different uh, sequence of returns and take a look at as many of those probabilities as possible and spits out a number that will tell you the degree of certainty in which you have enough uh, to make it. (laughs) And and it's funny because, as you know, most of the time people will find like an 85% chance of certainty and go, yeah, I'm good with that. I was at uh, camp Phi a few weeks ago and this guy, big earn who does a lot of work around safe withdrawal rates. He was talking about that and about how 85% means that the, and I know I use this analogy, I think last week that, that you're coming in hot, right? I mean, even in a good scenario, you're nearing the end of life and your money is probably running out fairly quickly. He said, How would you like it and would you like it if you went to the airport and you're standing in line to get ready to get on the plane? And they're like, hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to flight uh, 1867 from uh, Dallas, Texas to Detroit, Michigan. Uh, Today, uh, our simulator tells us we have an 87% chance of making it, which is
2: perfect, which is just just great. I've got a different (laughs) perspective on that because... What he's assuming by suggesting that, which I understand, is that you wouldn't adjust along the way. And I think it's more likely to happen, let's say that you go with that 85% number, 75% number, and you're going, well, yeah, one in four, one in five chances, I'm going to run out of money. It's not that. It's not 100% or zero. Those aren't the two outcomes. The outcomes are, I do what I want according to this plan, or I have to make some adjustments along the way. Because you've got this plan, right? And you I hate the term, but you know you're on this glide slope and everything's going great, and then a big bear market happens or some weird thing happens, and you're now below, right? Yeah. And you can't you can't recover. So do you just continue to put that using your analogy? Do you just continue to like fly that into the ground, or do you throttle back and like save some gas? Right? Do you try to spend a little bit less? And I would submit to you that maybe the first year or two. As If you fall below that path, you're trying to wait and see and see what happens, right? But as it becomes more and more evident that you're not going to catch back up for whatever reason, you had increased expense that you weren't uh, expecting or market performance that you weren't expecting, I don't think that a rational person then goes, well, I guess that's just one of the four chances that I run out. Hopefully I die soon. I see what you're saying, but at 85%,
0: let's say that you're at 85% or Dave's at 85%. He talks about when do you YOLO? I might not YOLO right away. I mean, I might. I might get it up into the nineties. Get that into you know ninety two, ninety three, ninety four percent before I go. Okay, because then the chance of me having a course correct is a hell of a lot less.
2: Except for the fact that I also think the other side of that is also true. You know, you run these different scenarios, these retirement planning scenarios, on whatever platform you want to use, and it says like at age one hundred, you'll have one hundred and eighty seven million. What? Like, I think I think that's just as ridiculous as it saying at 92, you run out of money. If along the way, because if you're using conservative assumptions on your investment portfolio, you're not saying, hey, I'm all stock, so I should get 10 percent a year. That's true, right? If you're all S&P 500, you should get 10 percent a year. I would be OK with that, except for the fact that you don't want to plan on that, right? Plan Use your plan on eight, plan on seven and a half, you know, and see what happens. But the outcome on the other end of that eighty-five percent is more likely, which is to say that you're spending and you're not spending enough, and you're accelerating your portfolio balance, and it's growing faster than you can consume it. And I think it's just as likely that you have an, a course correction on that side of it too. And you're like, okay, if I don't make any changes, I'm gonna have a hundred million dollars. Like this, that's ridiculous. Like, what can I do today when I'm in my seventies or eighties or nineties to like? not consume it, but have, have impact now versus like just going, well, the plan said I can only spend 4,000 a month. I have $11 million in my IRA, but oh, well, I can only do like, you're going to make changes on that side of the plan too, just like you would on the other side. So, well, and sadly we see too many people that don't,
0: you know, they don't, they don't realize that they could have bigger goals, that they could impact their community, that they could bring other people with them. They could do so many fun fun things that, you know, studies show increase your happiness too. increase your own happiness. Like if you want to look at this selfishly, you know, the way to be more happy, give more.
2: Yeah. Just like we were talking about in terms of, you know, target giving away their data to be more successful. It's, it's kind of the interesting natural law there, but you know, financial planning is not a one-time thing. You don't do it at 54 and go, well, this says I'm good, then I'm good. And never think about it again. I mean, well, I guess maybe some people can do that, but you're always going to be making changes along the way because your money's going to behave differently than you expect. You're going to behave differently than you expect. You're going to have different different things happen in your life. Just look over the last ten years. You know what what's happened over the last ten years in your life that is completely random that you would have never thought that would have happened. You know, or the lives of your children or grandchildren, and and you've got a whole bunch more of those ten year increments. Or, you, or if you're fifty right now, you started working when you were twenty two. That's thirty years ago. You have another 30 years in front of you and then more time in front of that. <laughs> you have more time in front of you than behind you. What's all the changes that have happened over the last five or six decades? All those changes are going to happen again. So it's going to impact your money. So be okay with being flexible, I guess.
0: Thanks for the question, Dave. And if you've got a question for us like Dave did, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. Leave us a call so we can help magnify your money. And we, because uh, Dave was so brave to call in, we're going to shoot him out of code to go over to our friend Brad's site, who makes all the stacking Benjamin swag for us. Brad in Cincinnati, all roads. It seems like OG leading to Cincinnati two weeks away. Economy conference, November 12th live show. Hope you can join us. Hope you can stay around for the economy conference afterwards. I'll be speaking at that and uh, good times in Cincinnati. All right. Uh, normally this is where we would end things and say goodbye, but OG, I got a great email uh from someone the other day that I'd like to just take a moment and read. I love receiving emails like the one that we just received from our new friend Steve. Steve says, "Hey guys, wanted to let you know what a lifesaver this show has been for me. Started listening back in June after reading a few books, Your Money or Your Life, I'll Teach You to Be Rich, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and got up the courage to buy my first investment property. Though I've been hit by a few curveballs since, life not real estate." I've kept focused on the goal with the help of your humor, humility, and great advice. Headed to Economy in November and hoping to meet you all in person and giving Paula the chance to drink me under the table. I, I, and she will. Uh, I left a review today on Apple Podcast and sent you a voicemail too. He said, Big fugs all around. Big fugs. That was uh, one of my favorite episodes live from FigCon. The big fug. Yep. We don't give big fugs. We don't give any fugs, Steve. Uh, Thanks for that. That is so much the reason why we do this show. And uh, if you know somebody else that should be a stacker, should be on this train to financial independence, please share the episode with them. And if you have a moment, leave a review of the show so that people know just exactly how much, uh, well, you guys who help uh, bring the show every week, create this community to help us all get ahead together. All right. That's going to do it for today. Last but not least, if you are looking to make better decisions now, I should just start saying, "Og 2022, shouldn't I? Yep. In 2022, because 2021, your decision-making is what it is at this point. But if you're looking for better decisions, that means better people in your corner and OG and his team are taking clients. So to get to their schedule, to find out how they can help you make better decisions it's stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG. That is that link. In a few weeks, we'll start announcing the book tour dates coming up. Can't wait to see everybody in Q1 of next year as we go around the country. All right, that's going to do
1: it for today. You got it from here, Doug. What should we have learned today? Sure thing, Joe. Why don't you just get back to lighting a few candles over by the bathroom? I'll tell everybody what they should have learned today. First, take a lesson from Mayshi. Listening is a life skill you can never outgrow. Whether it's your boss, customer, or friend, just remember, you have to stop talking for a second to listen. Second, how about a lesson from Steve Kerber? It's important to practice as much fire safety at home as you do in the office. But the big lesson? Katy Perry's really got something with all these hit records. Time for old Doug to take back out the accordion and get the band back together. Between my sweet polkas and Joe's mom's two-step, we can create quite a floor show. Call me if you need somebody to play your next ribbon-cutting or bat mitzvah or, you know, like high school reunion. We totally rock. You can follow May Shi and learn more about her work at her current company, YesSheMay.com Ready to practice better fire safety at your house? Learn more at SmokeAlarms.ul.org and CloseYourDoor.org This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2021, and is created by Joe Salcihai. Our producer is Karen Rapine. The show is written by Joe and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. After you listen, check out our show notes page written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. Brooke and Joe also collaborate on a guide to the show and with lots of extras we couldn't include on today's podcast. Heck, they'll also throw in some life money lessons from Joe and it's all free. It's called The Stacker and you'll find it at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. Once we get all of this goodness bottled up, it goes over to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart, who helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to talk about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is the room mother in our Facebook group, The Basement. She also is our social media coordinator, so say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. She and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. For a URL that'll take you right to our Facebook group, by the way, type stackingbenjamins.com forward slash basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And until next time, remember kids, it's not nearly as fun doing this naked as you might think.
0: I got to start watching the squid game.
2: I hear it's Something
0: it is. It it is dwarfed every other show that Netflix has had. This show has done so much by coming out of the blue that I've got to watch it. And I told Cheryl yesterday, I'm like, we got to do a review of squid game on the show. Uh, But I haven't been watching that. You know, you don't have gotten back to, and I can't believe I got, I got off of it. it is a show out of Canada That you can watch on Netflix called Kim's Convenience. I
2: think we talked about this already.
0: Uh, We did, but I only watched the first two episodes. Okay. The moment you've been waiting for is almost here. Ooh,
2: something special? What?
0: The Kims are
2: back. (laughs) For real? Yes. Very good. Perfect. I want to hear everything. Tell me the best part.
0: You can catch all new episodes oh! only on CBC and CBC
4: Gem. Real men have to fight the wolf when they're a kid. That's how you become a real man.
2: Have you ever fought a wolf, that?
4: One time, I ride pig. Kim's Convenience,
0: new season, January 19th on CBC one time, and CBC. One time, Gem. I fought a wolf. That is uh, more fun from Kim's Convenience, which came out with season five at the start of this year. Uh, I talked about this earlier. Oh, gee, I watched just the first two episodes. last time I talked about it, I thought it was hilarious. And then I got distracted by other things. And shame on me because this show is so damn funny. Oh, my goodness, is this show funny? I have at least three Laugh Out Loud moments, I think, every episode that I've watched. And I'm just finishing up season one. Uh, This is a show of a Canadian family that's originally from... Korea and that definitely holds on to a lot of their Korean heritage. Uh, the dad, it definitely does not like Japanese culture and makes that known all the time. And he also talks about how some people will steal from you and some people will not. And at first you think he's being incredibly racist as he explains who will steal. And then you find out that he's an equal opportunity offender. He is very, very racist, but also There are some people of some races that wear brown shoes and those people don't steal from you. But some people that if they're the same race and they wear black shoes, those people steal from each other. Because if you're X race and you wear brown shoes, those two cancel each other out. Because people with brown shoes do not steal. Just absolutely, absolutely horrible. You're like, uh, wow, 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 wow. Sometimes they, they push... The button, and I think that's what good comedy is. In fact, I was reading our friend Paul Allinger shared something uh, that a good longtime comedian was talking about a piece that he wrote, an opinion piece that said that you know comedy sometimes, og, will will push your button, right? That is the goal of some comedians. I look at the, the person like Dave Chappelle who has gotten his share of feedback lately from different groups that he is insensitive and that he makes jokes that maybe we shouldn't be making, yeah. and I think that. For, to some degree, that is a comedian's job, is to say these are the things that we're all thinking about. Maybe it takes a laugh to get a, to to take them seriously. And and while I wouldn't say Kim's Convenience is a show that that is on the front edge of the zeitgeist of uh, race relations and political humor and and solving all the world's problems, I think they're on the edge enough that I have a really good time watching it while it still makes me think. And I love a good comedy that, that makes me think so I'm finishing season one. It has been uh, a phenomenal ride. I, I don't know who would not like this show. Uh, all four members of this family are compelling. In fact, I, I told Cheryl as we were binging the third show of the night, the cool thing about this, they're only 20 minutes long as well. It's a half hour show that normally on CBC would have commercials. And so it's 21 minutes for an episode. Uh, so we will binge three of them in an evening in an hour And have a, have a great time doing it. But I told Cheryl between episodes, I'm like, I don't know which family, which member of this family I like better. I don't know if I like the dad, the mom, the daughter, the son, they all are just really well-played, compelling characters. So anyway, I, I, I know I gave Kim's convenience a thumb up maybe six months ago. I'm giving it a huge thumb up as I finish season one. This is a really, really good TV. I think a lot of people miss because of the fact that it's because it's originally a Canadian TV show.